Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Emily von Poprang is the co-founder and CEO of Oddbox. Oddbox is tackling the global crisis of food waste, one of the main contributors to climate change. Did you know that 40% of all food produced globally goes to waste? And the majority of this waste happens in two areas, before the produce reaches the retailers and supermarkets, and in our own homes. Oddbox have built a network of 60 different growers and 300 farms to rescue surplus and wonky fruit and veg from, that supermarkets are unable to use. They distribute this perfectly good food to consumers all over the UK and help educate people on minimising their food waste at home. In this episode, Emily explains the extent of the food waste problem, how we can solve that problem together, the Oddbox journey, funding and growing a team. Hey Emily, as a a long-term customer and fan of Oddbox, very excited to have you on the show today. How are you? Yeah, really good. Thanks for having me, Craig. No, 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 not at all. Absolute pleasure. Um, So I was looking into your background and I saw you kind of start out in like finance and operations, mainly in corporates. And then um, you joined uh, Girl Effect, which was a nonprofit um, helping adolescent girls in developing countries. I was just keen to actually hear from you kind of what triggered that shift from what some may say is like kind of the corporate career track to more of like a social impact for goods career path. Yep. So uh, as you mentioned, my background is in uh, finance. So I did the business school and then uh, actually uh, was working in France, then got the opportunity to uh, move to India, went to work in India in uh, um, uh, in uh, a big US corporate. Um, what uh, branches or kind of um, uh, subsidiaries in several countries, including India. And But I've always done quite a lot of volunteering work uh, on the side of, kind of my main job. And that's always been something that uh, if you had asked me kind of, uh, 20 years ago uh, when I was uh, studying where I would want my career to go, um, uh, when I was you know, 30, 40, 50 years old, uh, it's always been for me um, doing something good and actually incorporating that uh, thing about uh, incorporating that into my work. And so, uh, so then, um, so I worked in India for uh, five years and then uh, met my husband there. We moved to the UK. And uh, uh, when we moved to the UK, uh, um, again, the, the um, because I didn't have UK experience, the easiest way was to uh, go back to uh, stay in the corporate sector. Uh, I did uh, my consultancy qualification at the same time. And uh, um, after two years, uh, that there was an opportunity for me. I had UK experience. I had kind of the, uh, the accountancy, uh, UK accountancy degree. And so uh, uh, I was at a stage where I could then change sector but it was always uh, something which had been on on my mind uh, and um, just doing that on the side uh, wasn't satisfying uh, enough especially when you spend like uh, 40 50 or 60 hours of your day uh, working and then uh, uh, it's better if it's enjoyable and you feel that you're having an impact 
absolutely um yeah part of through my work i guess i get to see that more more often um and i always find it intrigued to see like at what point people decide that yeah what, what what's important to them and i think that's the trend that i'm enjoying seeing the most actually at the moment is people wanting to do work that they enjoy that makes them feel good and then more importantly they feel like they're having a positive impact in some way like within the world um and I'm going to, I guess, kind of put a little pin in your personal journey, which we'll come back to shortly. But um, first, um, just want to chat about the topic of the food waste, which obviously your business focuses heavily on. Um, and I read this, well, I've, I've heard it a few times now, but it's still a horrendous stat, which is like up to 40% of all food produced globally is wasted. That's a hugely inefficient system that we have. Um, I just wonder if you could um, shine some light on exactly like where in the system from the the kind of creating and producing to the consuming, like where we're seeing the most waste occurring. So majority of waste happens in our own homes. So uh, half of the waste happens because uh, we uh, buy too much and uh, we don't use everything that we buy. And uh, so either we haven't planned properly or there's been a promotion or there's, uh, we've, we all have busy lives and uh, there's kind of, uh, we plan to be uh, eating dinner at home and suddenly there's uh, a change of plan or uh, there's something in our fridge that we just don't really fancy. And after two days, we realize that it's not good enough. So there's a uh, huge amount of waste happening in people's homes. Uh, and after that, there's a lot of waste happening uh, what we call as pre-retail, uh, 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 a big part of that is uh, pre-farm gate. So even before it goes into uh, manufacturing or it goes uh, to retail, the one uh, kind of misconception that uh, people have is that there's a lot of uh, waste uh, in supermarkets. Actually, that's very little. So um, uh, retailers are uh, really good at kind of, uh, pushing the problem uh, either upwards or downwards. So um, there's a lot of risk, uh, which is uh, on the uh, grower and suppliers uh, in terms of uh, uh, on, on both sides. They don't necessarily want to, uh, especially for fresh produce, they don't necessarily want to uh, agree on fixed uh, contract with um, fixed volume because from the grower point of view, uh, there's imp- there's implication in terms of the uh, the weather might um, uh, change uh, how much volume they are able to produce and so they can't be tied up into uh, uh, servicing a retailer with fixed volume. Uh, otherwise, it puts a lot of pressure on them to uh, overproduce, which they, they uh, obviously already do. And in the, at the same time, a retailer doesn't want. Uh, so uh, if, if, if it's uh, cold, people want to eat more, eat more root veg. If it's warm, they want to eat more salad. Um, that's not something that uh, retailers can predict. And uh, so there's always an element of uh, the, the, uh, their orders will change. Uh, very frequently, so on a weekly or sometimes daily basis, uh, they will change their orders. They might have kind of planned volume, planned agreed volume with uh, suppliers, but they will change that uh, kind of, um, uh, quite re- frequently and at the last minute. And uh, then in terms of what they hold in terms of uh, stock, uh, again, um, they will work with, uh, um, so they will have kind of promotions to move uh, stock uh, out quickly. Or they will work with uh, charities, so like uh, Fair Share, Food Cycle, or uh, uh, organizations like Olio to make sure that uh, actually their 
there's very little which goes to landfill. So uh, as I mentioned, 50% is in people's home. The remaining is kind of either pre-farm gate um, or it's during the manufacturing process. Got it. And that answered a couple of my, my next questions. Um, and um, I guess to, to go a bit further into the area that you focus on, which is like the, the wonky and the surplus produce, you, you just kind of explained a bit about the surplus and how that's impacted by like supply and demand and just things that are outside of a lot of people's control. In terms of the wonky fruit and veg, um, can you explain a bit more about, and I think I think in general, kind of consumers, retailers are getting much better here, but maybe more kind of historically, like what's been the issue with with the wonky food? Like, is that very much consumers not wanting to buy stuff that looks a bit funny? Is, is that supermarkets trying to have the perfect produce to get market share? Like what's What's been the driving factor behind that? So it's a combination of uh, different things. And so for us at Oddbox, we focus on uh, what is, so working with fresh produce suppliers and taking anything that they are not able to sell. So uh, as you mentioned, it can be that it's surplus, there's overproduction, there's a crop flush because there's been changes in the weather or uh, it's been a better year, better yield, or um, it's uh, don't meet supermarket specification. And typically it's because it's just uh, too big, too small, sometimes cosmetic imperfections, uh, skin markings, things like that, which don't affect the uh, eating quality of the produce. And our principle are that we're grower-led. We don't ask anyone to grow for us. We actually take... Uh, advantage or, or kind of help the growers uh, as an alternative outlet for produce which don't necessarily have a market. And so in terms of the uh, wonky, it's, uh, so there's two things. People in store shop with their eyes. So you know, we've been used to uh, kind of uh, Grapes, for example, in the UK, people like the green grapes very green, and they feel that um, they look fresher when they are very green. In mainland Europe, people will like these green grapes a bit more yellow because they have they are sweeter. So there's kind of some conditioning, uh, depending on uh, where we uh, we've grown uh, in terms of what we expect the produce to look like. Uh, so. It's partially that, and that came from actually uh, governments implementing specification on produce, uh, which were initially to uh, drive better quality. But uh, these uh, now these specifications have been lifted several years ago, but uh, they continue to be used by the retailer. There's another element which is about efficiencies. So uh, if uh, a lot of the um, produce in the UK are packaged, and it's a lot easier to put. Uh, uh, five apples of 200 grams uh, in a pack to make one kilo of apples than putting different uh, apples of different sizes and weights and shapes. Um, and also uh, uh, people uh, will count the number of apples. And so uh, to avoid that problem, they put five apples in every pack and they all kind of look the same. Um, if you think about uh, cucumbers, uh, you always find cucumbers wrapped in plastic and that's because it extends the freshness, so it creates less food waste to have them wrapped in plastic. However, the wrapping machine uh, is uh, can only take straight cucumbers. So uh, what we call as the curly cucumbers can't uh, be sold because they can't be wrapped. So there's kind of, uh, and similarly in terms of uh, transporting uh, produce, 
if everything is the same uh, size, it's a lot easier to kind of uh, maximize the space um, on pallets or in a, uh, in a truck to uh, transport the produce. So there's a lot which has been driven as well by uh, efficiencies. Yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. Um, and I guess kind of zooming back out again now and, and looking at the, the global food waste problem, what, what is the impact that this is all having on our planet? So uh, we, so as you mentioned, we uh, grow close to uh, 40% of what we grow is uh, wasted. So uh, food waste, food production overall contributes 25% of all greenhouse gas emissions. Food waste contributes 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions. So that's uh, uh, a huge amount of the climate uh, crisis, which is caused by uh, growing food that we never consume. Uh, and in terms of the, uh, so people know about uh, plastic and there's a good understanding of plastic. There's less of an understanding about food, but the impact of food waste is uh, close to 250 times bigger than plastic. In terms of the, uh, the impact on uh, the uh, climate, obviously plastic has other issues in terms of uh, pollution of ocean and uh, kind of detritus and, and all of that and how it kind of comes into, uh, into the food that we eat. But in terms of uh, the impact on uh, the, uh, the temperature of our planet, uh, food waste um, has a massive impact compared to uh, plastic. And uh, just sometimes all these stats kind of, uh, don't necessarily uh, make a lot of sense at an individual level. So uh, I like to kind of use uh, something which is a bit more relatable. Uh, growing and wasting one kilo of potatoes requires 300 liters of water. And 300 liters of water is the equivalent of three showers. So actually, when um, we waste a bag of one kilo of potatoes, it's wasting the equivalent of three, uh, the water for three showers. In addition to obviously the land usage, the labor, the fuel, uh, which is involved in growing the potatoes. And, and potatoes uh, are pretty uh, efficient. Uh, if you think, uh, and produce overall is pretty efficient. Uh, if you think about dairy and meat, it's kind of uh, thousands of liters. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's scary. Whether you look at it in, in the bigger picture stats or like on a more individual level. Um, in terms of, I guess, where you see like the top two or three uh, most like impactful ways that we can start to shift the needle in the right direction. Because it feels like there's been quite a lot of innovation and lots of good stuff from the likes of our box, Olio charities that work with the kind of like the growers to make sure that doesn't go to waste. So is the real opportunity now is about wastage in the home and it's about education or like better efficiencies in the home or is it somewhere else in the in in the process? So there's there's still uh, a lot of waste happening uh, pre-retail. So there's still uh, massive opportunities and food waste, in my opinion, is an area where there's been underinvestment and unlimited focus. Uh, due to the fact that uh, the government hasn't really focused on that, um, there's no mandatory reporting of uh, food waste uh, at uh, supplier level. So there's actually a very uh, minimal understanding of how much waste happens. And all these stats are quite vague because nobody really knows how much is being wasted uh, pre-retail. Uh, so I think there's a lot in terms of forecasting, in terms of better 
uh, planning in terms of uh, uh, upcycling. So there's a lot of opportunities and we're seeing kind of more and more uh, businesses uh, thinking about uh, upcycling. How can we use uh, what's remaining uh, when coffee is grinded, when uh, juices is produced? So there's opportunities in that space. Uh, I think the root cause of food waste is our own behaviors, is the fact that we're a very uh, demand-led society. Uh, and that's been uh, even more driven by all the fast delivery startups which have uh, come up in the past few years. That, uh, and, and Amazon and uh, kind of all the, uh, the e-commerce. It's very easy to... Um, then wake up and think, oh, I'd love to uh, have this uh, today. It can be in your doorstep the next day. Or in the, in the case of food, it can be in your doorstep in 10 to 15 minutes. So we've been so used to, uh, in terms of cooking, we look at a recipe and we decide, oh, that seems nice. Let me kind of get all of the ingredients for this recipe instead of thinking, what do I have in my fridge, in my cupboard, and what can I make with what's already available? So we're not really going to shift the dial enough unless we change mindset and behaviors around how we consume. And that's something that we're trying to... So obviously at Oddbox, we provide an outlet for growers to sell produce that they are not able to, uh, to sell, which are surplus or which are uh, out of specs. Uh, that's a bit of a plaster that uh, we provide uh, unless we fix the root cause of the problem and get people to uh, uh, shop and eat differently. We're not going to really solve the issue of food waste in a big way. So, however, um, uh, uh, it's not one or the other. There needs to be kind of some short-term solution whilst we work on kind of driving some change in our behaviors. And that's what we do with our community. We are trying to kind of educate them around the big issue of food waste. We are trying to edu- educate them, provide them with tips, recipes on how they can use um, what's in their fridge, uh, innovative ways to use uh, different type of produce, and uh, we released uh, a cookbook uh, end of last year with uh, Martin Odell, who's a, a food waste chef, uh, which provides recipes, which is, if you don't have courgette, you can use aubergine or you can use beetroot or uh, more flexibility, um, helping people uh, think uh, in a way which is more flexible, more resourceful, uh, instead of just being guided by a recipe. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so much of that resonates with me. I, I mean, we actually in my household, we deleted delivery and all those apps just before Christmas because it was just getting too much. And um, I, I really enjoy cooking. So I actually love having seen what's in the cupboard or what's in the fridge and then trying to make something around it. But I feel there's dishes like curries, stir fries, that you can pretty much use anything in. They're quite versatile. And in terms of what you can do with those dishes, it's just taking the 10, 15 minutes to go and cook it as opposed to click something on your phone and wait half an hour for it to arrive to the door. Um, but I'm also kind of hopeful that although it's not great in terms of what you see in the news line, like the news at the moment with like food poverty and cost of living, inflation, but hopefully that will drive efficiencies. Like people will let less stuff go to waste. They'll make the most out of what they have in the cupboards. Um, so I'm really hoping that's something like we start to see, see more and more. 
And and actually to that point, uh, Craig, uh, during COVID, uh, because there were shortages, uh, there was a decrease in the amount of food waste at home. So uh, the uh, so the bad news, the sad news is that with uh, that's uh, increased uh, back uh, post COVID, but there was that change of behavior which was created by food shortages. Yeah, but you like said it. it- it needs to stick somehow we need to figure out a way to keep educating people but uh, yeah I, I mean i've been using Oddbox for a few years now and it definitely <laughs> it definitely helps um so coming back to the Oddbox story um you mentioned you kind of always had this itch where you wanted you're always doing kind of volunteering on the side but wanted to find a way to do that more full-time and you're working at girl effect um like where when and how did the idea for Oddbox come about yep so uh, Obviously, I'm not from the UK. I'm originally from France. I grew up in the north of France, so kind of very, very much up north uh, next to the Belgian border. And my grandparents on both sides were uh, potato farmers. Uh, though uh, at the time, I didn't know about the issue of uh, waste. Uh, I moved to the UK um, over 10 years ago. And when we arrived in the UK, I was quite amazed by the fact that I could get uh, strawberries uh, all year round. Uh, however, it's, uh, eating strawberries in winter is a bit disappointing. It doesn't really taste great. Uh, you know that it's been imported from Spain or North Africa. It's been picked and dried. It's traveled quite a bit. And so it kind of lacks that sweetness uh, from ripening in the, on the plant. And uh, I was used to uh, growing our own strawberries. So we had lots of strawberry uh, plants in our garden. And so I kind of knew what strawberries were supposed to taste uh, like and uh, um, uh, at that time, I kind of didn't really think about it uh, much more than that. Um, and uh, fast forward five years later, uh, we went on holidays to Portugal. And when you go to Southern Europe, uh, you uh, go to the local market every morning to do your shopping and choose what you're going to eat for lunch. And there was this uh, amazingly tasty and juicy tomatoes, which looked uh, ugly. Uh, they were kind of full of cuts, different colors, uh, but they were amazingly tasty. And that kind of brought me back to thinking about uh, that uh, disappointing strawberries experience and made me question why I couldn't get uh, such tasty tomatoes uh, in London. And so when we came back from Portugal, I started doing some research on the produce supply chain. And that's only then that I realized uh, kind of what's happening and the extent of food waste. And uh, and that's kind of what uh, uh, triggered uh, the idea for Hotbox. So realizing uh, food waste, understanding that um, uh, there were a lot of specs uh, in the uh, UK and that was driving food waste. Um, and at that time, there were uh, two startups in the US who had started something uh, similar to Hotbox. I came across uh, that uh, model and uh, looked for, uh, is there something like that in London that I can buy uh, my fruit and veg from? And uh, uh, there was nothing existing. So I so, uh, kind of thought maybe there's uh, uh, a business opportunity to actually do something uh, good for the planet, solve uh, a massive problem uh, in uh, a commercial way. And uh, because my background is in finance, uh, uh, and maybe also because I worked in the charity sector, I also saw that the benefit of um, being uh, a business as well and not necessarily uh, having a char- charitable model. Mm-hmm. 
So interesting. And 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 to kind of keep playing that out then. So so that was the concept and the idea and then the research. What did what did like year one and two look like in terms of validating that idea? Like where were you getting the fruit and veg from originally? Who, who were your first customers? Yeah, so at so at that time when we started, I was uh, so um, uh, I started it with uh, my uh, my husband, um, and at that time I was still working full time, so we would uh, do it only at the weekend. So it was just a small project, a weekend project at the start. Uh, so we um, I uh, contacted a lot of suppliers directly and um and nobody really was interested uh, to uh, send us kind of, uh, one box of uh, something so then we went to the wholesale market and found um a grower who was also a wholesaler and so at the start we would get the produce from the wholesale market so our new current garden market um next to Vauxhall um the wholesale market is open uh, from 11 at night till 5 in the morning. So we would go uh, at uh, uh, 4 in the morning, uh, get the produce, uh, pack the boxes, and deliver to a few people in our neighborhood. So uh, we did a bit of uh, printed some leaflets that we put in our neighbor's uh, post box, uh, got uh, half of our friends to uh, sign up, and we started with like a, a six-week trial. So doing everything ourselves and really, um, uh, we were keen to see whether that was an idea which could work uh, in the UK and uh, and how it would work exactly and really get uh, feedback from people. And then we took a bit of a pause to kind of uh, um, take some of the feedback on board and restarted a few months later uh, with kind of a bit more of a. Uh, uh, so we had warehouse space at a local church, and then uh, finding a few uh, freelance drivers to deliver the boxes. But uh, again, we restarted with uh, 20, 30 customers and grew from, from there. And so the first first uh, year, uh, we hardly grew. We were only focused in uh, South London, and uh, it was we were doing a lot of. Uh, um, local fairs and events to uh, show the box, to show what the concept was, to explain uh, where the produce were from. So um, when we launched seven years ago, people didn't really understand uh, a lot about food waste. And so some people thought that maybe we were taking this produce from retail or from the retail skip what the retailers couldn't sell. So there was quite a lot of uh, uh, education that we had to uh, do to say uh, there's nothing wrong with the produce in terms of the eating quality. It's just as good. Uh, it's got the same freshness. It come it come from uh, kind of a grower, wholesalers, um, and um, then as we um, scaled Outbox, then uh, we were able to then start working with uh, uh, directly with growers. And now we only work directly with growers. But that was in itself. Uh, uh, a challenge because we didn't know anyone in the industry, we didn't know the language, and uh, we somehow thought that we could just call growers that they would be there with open arms uh, and that they would uh, send us uh, boxes of uh, things that they were not able to sell. What we realized is that uh, we were just not, uh, uh, we were just too small uh, to be uh, of any interest to anyone, and that uh, growers just grow, and that we would have to take care of all the logistics. And obviously, uh, uh, very few growers grow a huge variety of produce. So it meant having to go to different farms 
If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io, where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Well, yeah, my, my next question is going to be about the logistics, actually, because I, I have to imagine it's an incredibly complex operation. Can you give a bit more insight into like how many different growers are you working with around the UK? And, and is it one big like warehouse facility used as like a central distribution place or have you got multiple? And, and also because it's all perishable goods, I assume there's also a very fine timeline that you have to work through, like work to. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so, um, we now work with uh, over 60 different growers, but uh, uh, some of them are uh, small, some of them are medium-sized, some of them are big. And so overall, it's a network of uh, over 300 different farms. Um, uh, and some of them have uh, farms or partnerships uh, outside in the UK as well as outside of the UK. So we get access to uh, produce uh, in, uh, in other parts of Europe and sometimes from further, which would, might have come already in the UK, or uh, which uh, they, um, they import uh, for us in addition to what they already import uh, because it don't have, uh, they are not able to sell it in the local market. And so uh, uh, we, so for the first uh, two and a half years, we had our own uh, pack house uh, inside London. And so we were doing all of the packing ourselves just before COVID. We outsource that to uh, a fresh produce co-packer based in Birmingham. So we've got one central co-packer where all our boxes are packed. And then we've got uh, three distribution centers, one in Birmingham, one in Croydon uh, in South London, and one in St. Helens, so close to Manchester. And we do uh, all of the uh, deliveries uh, from there. So there's uh, lorries, which... Uh, uh, go from the growers to our uh, pack house and then from the pack house to the distribution centers. And then uh, we work with uh, uh, delivery partners to do all the uh, deliveries uh, to all the areas where we distribute. And in terms of produce, uh, we, so you're right, it's uh, uh, fresh produce. So we can't really hold a lot of stock. Um, so we have regular, so we arrange regular uh, collections from each of our growers. And, um, and so uh, some of the produce uh, will be stored for a few days. Some of the produce will be stored only for a day. And then we pack the boxes and the boxes go out to our distribution centers on the same day uh, or one day later. And then they are delivered overnight. So we do all our deliveries uh, overnight. And that's, so uh, that's where uh, what we've always tried to do is find a ways to uh, tick both the uh, commercial box and the, uh, the uh, sustainable box. So uh, where, and that's one example where uh, that works. It doesn't always uh, work as well, but it's, uh, it's cheaper to deliver overnight because there's less traffic on the road, uh, but it's also more uh, uh, sustainable because the vans uh, stopless. And so, uh, and so um, at this stage, uh, so we're in the process of uh, uh, slowly transitioning to electric vehicles. But uh, uh, until now, we've only, uh, we couldn't uh, afford to do that. 
uh, unless we were to on we uh, and we couldn't pass on the additional cost of uh, delivering with electric vehicles. So we've uh, managed that by uh, doing overnight deliveries. Nice, yeah, and that's one of the things that I love about our box as well. Is um, it's all very simple, but the sim- simple things are done very, very well. So, like you know, you get these recyclable copper boxes that all comes in. Packaging is absolutely minimal. I think at most it might be like a small paper bag that a few things will come in, but otherwise it's all loose. Um, like so it's delivered overnight. Um, yeah, as a consumer, you can see the care and effort and thought that's gone into that. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely appreciated from my side. Um, in terms of the journey, I guess what I was looking at timeline was, was I think around three kind of four years into the Oddbox journey, um, obviously COVID hit and from guests I've spoken to and just businesses I know, I think a lot of subscription businesses did really well during COVID, like demand rocketed, but it was unexpected. So operationally, it was very hard to keep up with that. Was that the experience you had there at Oddbox or was it like a different journey you had during COVID? Yeah, it was the experience. So, uh, it so it was you know, end of February uh, twenty. Uh, we were starting to see uh, news and supermarkets uh, saying that they were seeing a lot of demand. We were not seeing that demand, and then suddenly uh, mid March, then we had ten times uh, the number of uh, <laughs> new orders uh, coming through our website. And uh, as soon as the lockdown hit, then um, uh, our existing customers were on fortnightly uh, deliveries, moved to weekly. Uh, we had one customer who ordered uh, eight boxes on the same week. So with just our existing customers, we almost doubled our volume. Uh, and so we were lucky that we actually we had moved to an outsourced co-packer um, a few months before that. Otherwise, we would never have been able to service the volume that we were seeing. We were running out of space in our own warehouse. Um, and so we took our website down for uh, for several weeks, uh, for over a month, and uh, put a waiting list on the website and kind of uh, um, worked out how we could increase volume. And uh, after uh, three weeks, we kind of released some slots to new customers who were on the uh, waiting list. And then we reopened the website fully uh, two, three months after that. But yeah, that was a huge challenge of having to scale uh, the, uh, the packing team of having to scale the delivery team at a time when uh, everybody was looking for uh, for kind of home deliveries. I bet. And and did you manage to like retain most of that custom? Like, it was that like a ramp up and ramp down during COVID, or have you actually like it, it just drove a certain behavior and you've managed to really capitalize on that, and they've become like long term reoccurring customers in the main. Yeah. So it, it's it's been a mix. So there were quite a uh, so we had some people who. Uh, I'd been interested in Oddbox. I'd never really made the jump into trying it. And that kind of triggered that jump. And uh, for some people, they realize it's actually, uh, it actually works well for me. It helps me uh, um, eat healthier, cook more, uh, and uh, at the same time as doing good for the planet. Uh, for uh, for some people, they realized that um, as uh, the lockdown released, then they were back into the office a lot more, didn't necessarily have as much time to cook. And um, and so we saw kind of, uh, some reduction, but it was it was more gradual because there were several uh, kind of lockdown, lockdown release. So we saw kind of, uh, diff- the behavior changing over time. Got it. And then my next question is around more like how you build 
a brand like Oddbox, because for me, Oddbox is one of the headline, like kind of four good brands in the UK along the likes of Beam, Olio, those kind of like, yeah, headliners in, in like the impact space. I know this is quite a tough question to, to whittle down to a few simple things, but like, what do you think are the key elements to building um, such a recognizable, but like four good brand at the same time? So we are not brand experts uh, and we didn't do any really brand marketing um, uh, at, at the start. What uh, we did was, uh, I think we defined our style and our tone of voice, uh, not really kind of strategically, but uh, from the start, uh, we've been putting a leaflet in the box uh, where we talk about the uh, stories of the growers um, and we've always used puns from the start. We've always kind of had that style, which um, was came came organically from uh, the uh, from us and from the people that we had at, in the team uh, at the start. So uh, being quite kind of, uh, quite uh, consistent in terms of uh, how we were doing things and really kind of uh, um, uh, using the uh, so the same kind of. Uh, uh, puns the same style being I think our mission has always stayed kind of really uh, the same from the start in terms of being around food waste being around kind of, um, sharing what's happening um, uh, at at farm level what's happening in the industry and so I think it's a combination of uh, of a very clear mission and uh, being quite consistent in how we communicate it, um, we've we've used uh, some uh, known uh, ways of amplifying the brand uh, in terms of uh, influencer marketing. So uh, initially, kind of sending just boxes to influencers uh, and uh, hoping that they would post. So that kind of created quite a lot of brand awareness, and then just kind of uh, traditional. Um, uh, growth and brand marketing at some point. So um, uh, two years ago, we decided to work with an agency to uh, really crystallize a bit more what Outbox was about and how we were communicating and making sure that uh, in every touch point, we were communicating in the same way. Nice. Yeah. And, and I think for me, like the authenticity definitely comes through the transparency. I, I'm always a sucker for a pun and a bit of humor and like wits. I think that's a great thing to have within the brand. But I also think in every box when I open it up, it's also really clear on like the impacts. But my by me just having that box is having as a consumer like the positive impact. So there's also like an education element as well, which I think is is really helpful. Um, finally, I'm just going to chat to you a bit about funding because um, I think it's been quite an interesting like funding journey from what I could see. Um, like different um, different rounds of both crowdfunding and venture, and I know you're just closing off a very successful crowdfunding round at the moment. What have been the triggers to decide whether you go down the venture route or crowdfunding? And, and what do you see as like the pros and cons of, of either route? So we bootstrapped for the first uh, one and a half, two years. And um, because we didn't know anything about uh, <laughs> the startup world. And so for us, it was very much um, uh, traditional way of setting and growing a business that it needs to generate some profit or at least a little bit of profit because we uh, our savings were not going to go uh, very far uh, in taking a uh, kind of growing outbox so that's why we uh, we grew very slowly at the start and then at some point uh, 
uh, we kind of joined an accelerator and started talking to other startup founders and realized that uh, we had uh, quite a bit of traction, which meant that uh, there was uh, an opportunity to raise external investment. So we kind of learned about uh, the, uh, the different options. And, um, and so our first round was with angels and uh, a few people had done crowdfunding. And um, what we heard from them is that when you're a subscription business with a big community, crowdfunding works well because your community will want to back you up and uh, will invest in the crowdfunding. And that's what happened. Uh, our first round was in mid-2018. And half of the um, people who invested were already outbox customers. And um, then, um, then we thought uh, after that, and, and that enabled us to, uh, so we were only in South London, that enabled us to expand to other areas in London. So we were really constrained in terms of just uh, relying on our own funds and the small profit that we were generating, uh, which meant that we had a huge waiting list of people who wanted to get an outbox who were not in our delivery areas. And so that's kind of what triggered the decision to raise investment. After that, we thought um, it's good to have kind of our community involved, but uh, we uh, we are not experienced uh, entrepreneurs. We need a bit more support and uh, something a bit more structured. And that's where we decided to go to institutional investors. So that was very much kind of, uh, if we want to take, uh, continue to grow the impact of Outbox, then uh, we need additional uh, support from people who've done it before. And uh, that was the decision to go uh, for uh, um, a raise with institutional. So I think there's different. So in terms of the pros and cons, so at early stage, it's really valuable to uh, so uh, get angels on the journey, get your community on the journey. And uh, and often, uh, uh, angel investors will be uh, uh, ex-entrepreneurs who uh, can uh, be advisors. Um, it's, it's typically not very structured. So uh, it depends on who invests um, and whether they have the time to support or not. Uh, and the thing is that we're not, we didn't study in the UK. We don't have a big network in the UK. So for us, uh, it wasn't necessarily uh, very easy to find uh, these angel investors. Uh, for uh, somebody who's, uh, who's got a good network, then uh, it's, uh, it's easier uh, to find uh, people who will invest as angel investors. Um, and... In terms of, uh, kind of pros and cons of uh, institutional, so uh, they uh, so they want more control. So that's something that kind of, uh, obviously to be aware of that um, our institutional investor ask us to put a board in place. So more governance. Um, before that, it was only uh, uh, us two as co-founders on the board making all the decision. Then there's somebody else who uh, then is uh, with you to make the decision, which is uh, sometimes a good thing, sometimes a bad thing. Got it. And um, with the latest round of funding, what what would that allow you to do with the business? Like, what What's in the roadmap that you're super excited about over the next like, year or two? Yes, so uh, there's a couple of things. So right now we've kept our proposition quite simple. 
No, people can't really choose what goes in their box. And so we, we, uh, we put uh, 15, 20 different types of produce across all our boxes every week. Now, uh, somebody who's on a, a small fruit and veg box will only get um, 10 different produce out of this 1520. And quite often we have people who say, oh, I don't really like uh, cabbage. Uh, I can see that in the large box there's broccoli. Could I get broccoli? So there's uh, part of the investment will go towards uh, allowing that element of customization where people can uh, have a bit more flexibility in terms of what they choose um, uh, to put in, to have in their box. Um, and uh, in some ways uh, it should uh, make sure that uh, that cabbage doesn't stay at the back of the fridge uh, because uh, people get uh, broccoli that uh, they know and uh, want to cook. Um, so that's one part. Um, we're selling other things than uh, fruit and veg nowadays. So we're partnering with lots of uh, um, uh, other uh, brands, uh, typically uh, B-Corp or kind of, uh, brands that we feel have a positive impact on the world. And uh, um, we sell anything that they have which might be uh, surplus stocks or short-dated or packaging issues. Um, and uh, uh, so, uh, again, uh, give them that opportunity to make sure that uh, none of the, the stock, none of the uh, uh, products that they've manufactured uh, go to waste. Uh, and so we've partnered, for example, with Montezuma Chocolate, where they repackaged broken slabs of chocolates uh, for us. Uh, so that's um, so we want to expand that offering where uh, we offer more than just uh, fruit and veg, and for people to kind of have a bigger impact and being able to uh, meet a bigger part of their uh, food shopping. Um, we're also uh, obviously we've got access to a lot of uh, fruit and veg, a lot of them that uh, we're not able to take because we're limited in terms of uh, by the number of boxes that uh, we sell. Um, so we are looking at developing our own products. So whether it's uh, juices, uh, sauces, soups. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, different things that can be done with uh, with you know, surplus and rescued fruit and veg. Awesome. Um, I'm very excited to see this. Like I'd start to notice some of the brand partnerships coming through. I think I've had some like candy kits and sweets. I've had... Uh, rubies in the rubble tomato ketchup a dash water i think and i was like oh i hope this continues um so that sounds super exciting do, do you foresee the focus very much being on the uk for the for the like near mid future do you think you'll ever go outside the uk or so that's something that uh, we've got uh, on the plan but for not for the near future so we only deliver to 65 uh, percent of the uk so there are still opportunities uh, for us to expand in the uk um, uh, we're not doing that uh, in the short term, uh, but uh, again, we want to be able to uh, to kind of deliver hot box to more people in the UK first, um, and uh, expand our proposition first, and then uh, we're looking at uh, whether we can go to uh, other countries uh, in mainland Europe. So we've we've done a bit of evaluation in terms of uh, where we think there might be opportunities. Um, uh, however, it's uh, it's a lot of logistics. It's setting up uh, an additional pack house. It's setting up an additional delivery network. So that's uh, that's something that uh, we probably will do uh, in a couple of years. Yeah, makes makes total sense. 
And then I guess coming back to a comment you, you said earlier, which was around like one of the things around venture funding is, is like gives you some more support actually uh, and like network. Um, in terms of like you and your role as CEO and, and co-founder, which area have you found you've had to work on the most and, and like skill you've needed to develop as either the business has got bigger and more complex or just you transitioning to a slightly different role to kind of like the, the head of like director of finance ops you were doing before? So the... Uh... So I think there's two things because my background is in finance and operations. That's one area where uh, I felt quite comfortable. And so I had to kind of uh, uh, really decide to take a step back from that and realize that at some point I can't uh, do everything. And then I need to bring uh, somebody else uh, to do it. So there, there was a bit of a realization that uh, the things you're uh, the best ad are the things that uh, you give up. Uh, uh, kind of, uh, you keep holding on to uh, for the longest and give up uh, the last, and that's uh, that's not sustainable. Uh, and then, uh, obviously, we didn't. I didn't know anything about uh, uh, marketing and branding, so that's the area where um, uh, really we uh, we brought in really strong uh, people. Um, and uh, where uh, we had to learn quite a lot. But it's very much about uh, you know, uh, finding uh, really good people who have the expertise and uh, take, can take that on. 100%. And, and what would you say is like the best thing about your job? Um, so I think it's kind of the, uh, so the people. Uh, I think the people, it's the mission. Uh, so uh, being an impact-focused business uh, whenever... Uh, Oh, I we uh, we talk about oddbox. Uh, people are kind of always very exciting, excited, and saying, "Oh, I love uh, I love oddbox. Uh, that's amazing. Um, uh, what you've built." So that's kind of, uh, and hearing. It's more about hearing the uh, stories from our community uh, about how their children uh, wake up in the morning on oddbox day and run to the door, and it's a bit like uh, Christmas uh, every week. Uh, so. Uh, and, and knowing that uh, we're helping um, parents teach their children on where food comes from, introduce them to a more uh, varied diet. So uh, kind of, uh, food is very personal. It's kind of, uh, something which uh, which connects people and uh, and else. And food plays a massive part in uh, uh, in our own health, in the health of the planet. So it's kind of uh, that's. That's the amazing thing. And also you know, for all the people that we have working at Outbox uh, are passionate about what we do. So uh, we're working with uh, people who are really uh, driven and are really driven by the mission and by doing more. So that's kind of, uh, uh, something which is also amazing that uh, everybody uh, comes to work uh, in the in the morning really uh, enthusiastic and really motivated. So and we know that uh, people uh, don't come here. Uh, it's not a it's not only a job. Definitely. Oh, so much that resonated with me and, and the listeners can't see, but I've got the biggest smile on my face because my two girls definitely go to the door every Tuesday when, when our boxes arrived. We unpack it together in the kitchen. And then, like you say, uh, especially my youngest, like loves being involved with cooking and like chopping up. And um, yeah, oh, I <laughs> can't recommend recommend our box enough. Yeah, um, yeah and th- that's, that's that as well. You know, it's quite important that uh, our children 
learn where their food comes from and learn how to uh, to cook. See, it's it's a huge part of kind of uh, helping them uh, be set up for the future, and that's kind of uh, really exciting to uh, actually be able to enable that. Absolutely. And then I um, just wanted to touch a little bit on the B Corp bit for a moment. So um, not not surprised at all that you went down that route. Um, but I just wondered, like, what do you see as the difference that makes both for the company internally as well as like externally being a B Corp? So externally, in terms of whether uh, we uh, people buy more from us because we are a B Corp, I'm not sure. So I don't know if uh, externally that plays uh, a massive role. It's probably an expectation uh, from uh, customers that uh, we're a B Corp, but uh, at the same time, uh, consumers don't really know as much about B Corp as uh, people who are in the B Corp or the business community know about uh, B Corp. Uh, for us, it was very much, um, uh, we, uh, we want uh, to make sure that we are not greenwashing, that uh, what we say we do is uh, is true and get that external validation that we are doing uh, things in the right way. And the amazing thing about B Corp is that um, uh, first of all, you need to get through kind of, uh, quite a big assessment uh, before you become a B Corp. Uh, so uh, uh, it's uh, it's only a few companies who are able to uh, become B Corp. It's quite uh, extensive in terms of the requirements. And uh, but the most amazing thing is that. Uh, you need to recertify every three years. So it's not uh, something that you get a stamp and you have it forever. And there's a requirement uh, when you become a pickup that you should improve on your score uh, every time you recertify. So it's it's a process. It's not just a one-off stamp. And that drives, um, we've got a head of impact uh, whose role is to uh, make sure that uh, everybody participates in improving our score. And so everybody at Oddbox has uh, uh, objectives tied to uh, our own sustainability, to our, uh, to the impact that we have and how we uh, improve our processes. And BCorp is not only about uh, the environment, it's also about uh, how we work with our community, how we treat our people, uh, our governance, it's about diversity. So it's quite broad in terms of what it covers as well. It def- yeah, it definitely is. I, I, I'm probably a bit more aware of it than the average consumer. But whenever I look at um, a brand and I see that they are a B Corp, that for me straight away tells me about the intentions and values of that business and how seriously they take those things. Um, so it's definitely like a big plus from my side. Um, I normally have some questions about kind of what makes a business great to join, but you already talked earlier about how passionate everyone was and that they joined, joined for the mission. So my last kind of question is just going to be around your views on ways of working and what's like most effective in terms of like building and growing a team when it comes to remote, hybrid, you know, office-based. What what do you prefer, Emily, and, and, and why? So uh, we were very much office-based uh, at the very start. And uh, so we were all working on top of our pack house uh, in kind of, uh, three very small rooms, uh, which was really good for collaboration, but not necessarily kind of, uh, good for uh, for uh, anything else. Um, uh, and uh, then we moved, everybody moved remote. We now ask people to come uh, uh, at least one day a week uh, into the office. Most teams will come uh, two days a week. Um, 
personally, we've hugely benefited from uh, being able to uh, work from home because we've got a young daughter, and that means that uh, it's easier to uh, work around our kind of family commitments um, when we have the flexibility. Um, but we also see a lot of value in people uh, kind of collaborating and uh, and seeing each other face to face. So I think it's, uh, it needs to be a balance. Um, if when people are are motivated, have very clear objectives, then uh, it doesn't really matter where they work. But it can't. I I don't think uh, fully remote works over the long term. And I think there's some value in kind of people uh, being. Uh, in the same physical space uh, on a regular basis. It doesn't need to be uh, every day. And that's why for us, uh, we don't, we kind of, we're, we're quite flexible, but uh, we ask people to come at least um, once a week and we're quite flexible. Some people will come earlier, some people will come later to make it work around their kind of personal commitments. Yeah, no, I think at the core of it, like flexibility is key. And, and like you said, I think those are all really fair and good points. Um, so I guess wrapping things up now, um, for anyone that wants to follow the Odd Box journey, like where are you most active in terms of like social media? So uh, you can find us on uh, Instagram uh, at Oddbox LDN. We're also we've also been now on uh, TikTok. So, uh, but I would say uh, Instagram is probably kind of still our, uh, our biggest channel. Our website is oddbox.co.uk, uh, and um, yeah, that's kind of uh, we're also on Facebook. So on uh, any uh, kind of social media channels awesome well again it's been an absolute pleasure having the show thanks again for coming on and i wish you and the team all the best yeah thanks a lot craig it was a pleasure to be chatting with you thank you thanks for listening to today's episode if you've enjoyed it please subscribe share this episode and leave us a review we're just getting started out so it would mean a lot to us this episode was brought to you by craig turner produced by jabril al-sahimi and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.